This week on The Change Law, we're talking to Wilma Guggen about using the terminal to not just build software, but to also deliver software. Will is a few months into his journey of building Textualize, a company he started around his open source projects, Textual and Rich. When combined, Rich and Textual give you a Python framework to build beautiful full-feature TUIs for the terminal. We talk to Will about his big idea of the terminal as a platform, how he got here from first principles, what it takes to build textual apps, and whether or not they can replace not-so-good web admins, building, launching, and distributing textual apps, why Python was his choice of language, the big picture and business model behind Textualize, and why he's building this as open source and in public. A massive thank you to our partners and friends at Fastly and Fly. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. And our friends at Fly let you deploy your apps and your databases close to your users. Check them out at Fly.io. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Develop on the platform that sellers trust. Here's what you could do with Square. You could bridge more experiences. You could build online, mobile, and in-person commerce experiences that connect more customers and sellers. You could build custom booking solutions. You can create and track orders. You can accept payments. You can manage and curate inventory. You can organize customers. You can manage employees. You can extend Square gift cards to your app. You can use Afterpay. And all this is powered by the world-class Square APIs and SDKs that enable you to build full-featured business apps for yourself or millions of Square sellers. So much is available as a Square Solutions partner. Learn more and get started at changelog.com slash square. Again, changelog.com slash square. Well, one of the things that you say right on the website, textualize.io, is what motivates you is the realization that the terminal is a platform. Can you just take that sentence and launch off from there and tell us more about what it means? So I did some research a while back about uh, developers' attitude to terminal. And what I found was that it was 90% of people had a terminal open at least half of the day. 90% of developers, rather. You know, many developers get up in the morning and they open up a browser and they open up a terminal and both those apps stay open, you know, the entire day. So all these developers, you know, have this this window staring at them in front of them uh, and often they're using it. But people haven't seen it as a tool for delivering software. Uh, they see it as a tool for, for building software, uh, as, a tool for, as kind of a, an archaic tool. For, for doing things to create the software, but they haven't seen it as a delivery mechanism for the software itself. Uh, and I think we can do uh, a lot more with it. And uh, I've been experimenting over the years to see what you can do uh, with the terminal, and things have moved on uh, so much. Terminals can do 16.7 million colors. Uh, they've got lots of Unicode characters, which you can use to build various kind of graphics. And, and they're remarkably fast. Most terminals will use your, your GPU, so it can deliver fast updates at 60 frames a second. 
um, which is which is crazy to me. You know, it's because uh, you know, 20 years ago it was just simple green text that you typed into, and then you got a few lines of text back. But now it's using the same technology as video games. Um, so we there's very little code and projects out there uh, to build sophisticated applications. You know, Curses is the most popular one. It's been around for, for decades. But that looks very rudimentary. I mean, it's, it's very much rooted in technology of 20 years ago. So I figured, what can I do to use all this power that's available in the terminal and maybe bring some of the the improvements which have occurred in the web world, see if I can bring it to the terminal and then build applications inside the terminal. And uh, it turns out that you can do quite a lot. And what we built is Textual, which is a Python framework, uh, which creates these applications inside of a terminal, and they look uh, a lot more like web applications. Hmm. So when you say that it's a tool to build software, but it could become a tool to deliver software, are you speaking to the same people, or do you, meaning, do you think it could be a tool to deliver software to developers, or do you think it could be a tool to deliver software to the general population? Um, initially, developers, because um, it's kind of strange, and it's a piece of software uh, which is installed on virtually all desktop computers, and almost exclusively, it's only only developers and maybe some other technical people that are aware of it. Um, so in, initially, we deliver software to uh, other developers. But another thing we want to do at Textualize is have a, a, a bit of magic where you can flick a switch and you can take those applications uh, which were running inside the terminal uh, and put them in a browser. Um, so now you can build these applications and regular people, not just uh, developers, you can use them. When did you have this realization? How long have you been working on this stuff? Well, I started working on a library called Rich. Um, that was nearly nearly three years, about two and a half years ago now. Um, and that, it started off, uh, you know, from first principles, I just want to get colored text on the screen. And then I, I kept adding various other types of data and formats where I could display, I could render uh, tables uh, and, and progress bars. And I started um, tinkering with various other ways of uh, rendering more sophisticated content than you're used to in a terminal. So it kind of built up from there. I realized that there's lots more you can do in a terminal, but it does require a bit of work up front. It's not like a browser where you can just say, you know, give me a table and a browser render table. Uh, you've got to build it up from all the individual characters. But once the tools are there, um, you can do so much more with the terminal. Mm-hmm. When you talk about these rich applications for the web, in the browser, you have HTML, you got CSS, and you got JavaScript. What is behind the scenes of rich and textual to that is similar? Is there a similarity in terms of like a markup language, a style language, and some sort of like smarts like JavaScript is? A little. Um, so most of the code um, is Python, and that's one of our selling points is because there's so many people coming to Python these days um, whose background isn't software development exclusively. Excuse me, or you know they don't have any. Uh, web development experience or desktop experience. So we want them to build uh, apps that are exclusively within Python. But the type of Python I've created uh, is inspired a lot by JavaScript frameworks uh, like React and Vue, and it borrows some of their techniques. So you can uh, write applications using fairly you know, web-like technologies. And we've also 
built-in uh, CSS, because that's one thing that I don't think you can replicate with pure Python. So you can have a CSS file which affects how the terminal application is rendered. So you can set colors and background borders. Uh, you can set animation and, and layout just via CSS. So it's a very it's a very um hybrid uh, approach of Python plus web technologies plus CSS. It's interesting to consider this as a delivery vehicle for software because I mean, uh, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is like one, how do you build it? Because we, we talk to builders, right? That's the show we talk to developers. But then the same people are the consumers potentially, as Jared said before. Like who is the who is the end user of these things? And I just think about. How do you launch these applications? And maybe this is sort of part of the bigger story. Maybe you're just sort of, how do you build them right now? And how do you display them and, you know, make them rich and usable? But I think about how do you, like a browser, if you're similar to a browser, what a browser might do for delivering applications, that's pretty easy. You type in URLs and you get to applications via the web. You know, how do you get to the applications via the terminal if it's sort of going to take some of the, you know, some of the market share away from browsers, for example? Yeah, um, so eventually the, the first stage is just to build a framework where they can build these applications. Initially people probably distribute them like they do other Python libraries, so through PyPy or, or possibly on um, Brew, etc. Uh, but pretty soon we want to build this web technology where you can serve up a text application from another box. So it's just um, just like typing URL, there'll be some sort of command to text will run, you give it a URL or a URL-like String, and then it would then it would serve up that application, so you can have access to all these all these applications that run within the terminal as if they were locally installed, but they wouldn't be; they'd be actually running somewhere else. Right? Are are you there yet, though? Like, you, are you still at the building stage? Or are you are you at the how do you get access to them stage? Um, yeah, we're still at the building textual stage. We've got a release coming up in a couple of weeks, twenty uh, fourth of October, and a couple of days. Yeah. Not very far away, <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that will will take off. Uh, people will start creating applications. Uh, so the time the time when we do have this web service available, they'll be able to flick a switch, and as well, those applications that they've built will suddenly be able to be shared amongst um, other people without actually having to install the software. I'd assume that would serve as well as distribution mechanism, but also discovery mechanism, because one of the things that every good platform usually has is some aspect of a of a marketplace or a community or a way of discovering tooling or marketing your tooling. And so is that part of this long-term plan is because if the terminal is going to be a platform, it has to have more than just execution of apps, right? Yeah. Um, so I guess it would be have some kind of store, ideally a, a two of its own. Like an app store. Like an app store. <laughs> I wouldn't call it that, though. You might end up <laughs> litigation. I'll probably get sued. <laughs> but in principle, it's the uh, same idea. You can call it the terminal store. But yeah. Probably a name. The two-way store. Yeah, I've been perusing your Twitter feed, and I got to say that the things I'm seeing are very interactive, very very browser-like even, very similar to a web application. You know, you there was one where you were showing off the design system behind, I think it was behind textuals design system and it's it's got a sidebar and you can click and it's this is not normal terminal behavior like term, terminals more like key commands and things like that keyboard related things not so much mouse related things but you're clicking a sidebar and you're scrolling fast and you mentioned 
60 frames a second. Like when you think about the underutilized power that is, is in terminal, what kind of applications do you envision? Like what kind of things do you think will come about with that kind of you know frame rate available? So the, the, there's animation in there. And I think that just uh, can make the user experience uh, a bit nicer. Um, there's, there's kind of a range of animation. There's, there's animation from uh, helpful to gratuitous. Uh, so some of the stuff I post on Twitter is deliberately in the gratuitous site in that it doesn't really add much usability, but it looks kind of cool. Um, but at the other end, you've got things like smooth scrolling, um, which does aid you, you know, usability. Um, if you scroll, um, it's nice to uh, animate that so that your eye can can track position. You can go from like the bottom to to top. Um, so there's all sorts of other kinds of animation you can do. You can do you can do blending. So you can like fade something in to show it's more important, and then fade it out. So various other kind of usability things you can do with animation that you would uh, people have been doing in the web uh, for years have kind of like uh, brought to the terminal. So you're obviously a fan of the terminal, as are we. So we're all here enjoying terminals. I am one of these people that I have a terminal open right now. I didn't even realize I did because it's just always open on my computer all day long for whenever I need it. So I'm curious from your perspective, Will, what what's virtuous about the terminal? What makes it so special or interesting? Why do people love it so much? And then on the flip side, once you do that list, what's lacking? What what could be better, et cetera? Um, I think um, you're in a kind of a, a context where you have all this power at your fingertips, and it's very focused. There's no extraneous details you got to worry about, like the browser. I mean, I I love the browser. I love the desktop. Um, I come from a web development background, but I don't think that switching and moving windows about and and hunting for things to click is always like the most productive. But in the in a terminal, everything's there at your fingertips. When you get good at it, you can power everything with a keyboard which is what we want to do with Textual, even though it can look a lot like a web application, uh, which makes it kind of uh, accessible and explorable, and you can find things. Ultimately, I want these applications to be keyboard-powered. So you could um, be in the terminal, stay in the terminal, but launch this app, operate it with a keyboard, and then return back to the terminal. And you never have to context switch. Uh, I think you can be uh, more productive doing it like that. No distractions of Twitter or... Yeah, Hacker News or Reddit. Well, we might have a Twitter client one day. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you, won't you just put Twitter in the terminal then, and then we'll, we'll our context will be just as sh- as fractured. Mm. Just we won't have a browser tab. We'll have a Twitter a terminal <laughs> tab. I think people go to Twitter because in that case you do want to be context switched. I, I do it to get my head out of the code. Sometimes, sometimes you're switching yeah. to your browser because you need to Google something, and then you see and you have Twitter in the open tab, and you're like, oh, what's this? Oh, this cat is stuck upside down on a thing. And then all of a sudden you start scrolling. That's not coffee, that's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so a lot of times we're doing it because we would like the distraction. But other times I feel that just getting out of the terminal and into the browser, there are so many tabs there that just grab my eye. Yeah, but the, the terminal's like your own little world that you have control over and you can be more more focused. At least that's my experience. Mm-hmm. Well, it is one, you know, Command W away, at least in Terminal app on my Mac. It's Command W, similar to a tab in Chrome. So similar experience, at least in terms of how it tabs and stuff like that. But, you know, this is something that should be obvious to some degree, but I'd imagine that the Terminal has a different kind of access to the file system, 
you know, control mechanisms, uh, operating system APIs, et cetera, than the browser does. What are some of the trade-offs and differences when it comes to the platform itself and its access? Yeah, so if uh, on the terminal it's kind of native code, so so you can do anything that any other application can. You don't have to uh, go through a JavaScript API that someone's decided that you have, you know, you can have access to. So obviously, terminal apps uh, they may look like the browser, but they they can do more system related um, tasks. Um, anything that involves editing configuration files, you know, you can run them with sudo if you wanted to. You could you know, do any any sort of um, tooling and configuration type of things. The ultimate power. Yeah, yeah. Right, given you have pseudo access or administrative access, if you're not a, a guest user of sorts, then obviously you're, you have limited powers. But if you have the power, then you have the power. Exactly, and that, that brings me to a segue, is that you can run these applications on SSH, uh, over SSH, so that you can get like a full GUI uh, even though you're connected to a server, a web server somewhere, um, which would be harder to get up and running with a web application. You would have to install lots of software, configure you know, firewalls and, and routers, etc. Uh, but these terminal-based applications can just um, be launched very easily and they can be served over SSH. You know, there's a lot of explosion happening in home labs, you know, I think the Raspberry Pi has really helped this. Arduino mm. has helped this. People that have not typically been curious on a, you know, developer or terminal or kind of like geekery that developers, software developers tend to be in. Like people who are not typically a software developer are tinkering and being more and more curious. Do you see, you know, how this kind of platform can aid in, say, Pihole, for example, rather than going to Pihole on the web or Pihole.lin or whatever it might be? going to some sort of SSH application to tinker with Pi-hole or do different things that home labbers tend to do, mess with home automation, for example, rather than a, a crappy browser, maybe a more powerful terminal GUI. Yeah, so it, it can serve up a, a nice GUI that you can you can explore. Uh, they tend to be more um, accessible to people who aren't experts. I mean, we all use a whole bunch of command line apps where we've used a lot and then we can become very proficient in them but it takes quite a while to get there but a good you know a textual uh, user interface you can explore it quite easily so yeah you could run it on on raspberry pi and that's um uh, we, we test on that and it runs very well actually um, because they're, they're kind of like um it's a, a low low footprint type of thing so you can serve up a nice gui from a, a tiny little raspberry pi to do whatever you want it to do what about like forms? Could are forms easy to do in in this in textual? Is it, for example, a password change form? For example, if I wanted to do, you know, profile stuff, I'm just thinking like rather than like some of these things like uh, Portainer or different things that that home labbers tend to kind of mess with like with, with virtual machines or Docker or whatever, rather than going to, you know, a web application, could you do these things in in textual in a TUI? change your password, do different things like security-related stuff, to a face stuff, even uh, can you render a QR code, for example, in textual? Um, yeah, absolutely. We've got a text input that does passwords. Um, we've also got a, a checkbox control and buttons, acceptable and little scrolling windows. So yeah, you could easily do a password change type dialogue. That's interesting because a lot of self-hosted client-server software 
has web UIs, you know, going all the way back to like PHP my admin or AW stats. I'm showing my age now. And that great Perl scripts with a web admin that was ridiculous to use. Even to today's things, like uh, I've been set in my pie hole, thanks to Adam and his beating of the dr the pie hole drum. I got an, I got a Raspberry Pi now and I've got it, yeah. And so, you know, you set it up, you you get it going, it launches itself and then it's like, hey, go ahead, go hit our web admin, you know? And you have a local host, not local host, but a local network IP address you navigate to. And it's fine. It's a web. It's a web browser. It does the trick. It's got cool little charts and stuff. It's got all the configs and blah 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 blah. And yet, I'm like, this thing has to have a separate web server. It has to have an open port listening on eighty and four forty three. And all because we can't have like a cool. I mean, I can SSH in and do all the same things via config files. I can't do the charts and stuff. I could probably find a way to get at the raw data. But how cool would it be if like Pi-hole shipped with a TUI that was like full featured like their web admin didn't have to have a separate little part of their infrastructure that's like probably not their expertise is like probably building web apps. Like I, I don't know the Pi-hole folks, but they seem like they're firewall people, right? They seem like they're low level. They probably have IP tables memorized and stuff. And so like now they got to build a web admin, which could be a security problem. A lot of times they're interfaces are poorly made just because of the, again, mismatch of skills, it would be so cool if like there could be a terminal-based fully featured admin for Pi-hole that's just like, you just SSH and run it. Yeah, I think that's a very good, a very good use case for it because you can run it, you can run textual apps anywhere and it'd be kind of quite sophisticated and for things like um, an admin portal, um, it can do almost anything you would need. Um, you can even do some kind of graphs. You can have like spark lines and some basic plots. Only thing that I think TUIs can't do very well uh, is images or video. But for most admin interfaces, you don't need glossy images or or videos. You want text inputs. You want you want text. You might have spark lines and you know checkboxes, other kind of things um, that could cover ninety nine percent of what you need, you know, you have that software running on uh, on, on a router or, or tiny tiny box or Raspberry Pi. Hey friends, this episode is brought to you by my friends and potentially your friends too at Fire Hydrant. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. And Robert, there are several options out there for incident management, but what is it that makes Fire Hydrant different? The reason that we think that Fire Hydrant is is onto something is because we're meeting companies really where they are. We face the same problems that every company in the industry that is building and releasing software is also facing. So where you want people to be able to sign up for Fire Hydrant and immediately be able to kick off an incident using the best practices that we've built and we've experienced and have gathered through the other amazing customers that use our tool. It really is a very quick time to value. And we want people to have a long jump from where they are to where they want to be in incident management. 
I love it. Thank you, Robert. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all fire hydrant features included. There's no credit card required to sign up. They are making it too easy to get started. So check them out at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. Well, you got my attention, but what's step one? If I'm, let's say I'm on the piehole team, right? I, I don't mind the web admin. Maybe I don't like it. Maybe I like it, whatever. What's step one? If I'm just to use them as, as an example, what would be step one for someone like them to take up textual, to build a TUI for, or an admin for piehole? How does it work? Um, so from the development side, um, it's a Python API, it should be quite familiar to Python developers. Um, to create an app, you uh, import textual.app and you extend the app class. Um, and that's, that's your TUI there. It won't do much um, at that point. But then you implement a compose method, uh, which returns widgets. And widgets are like self-contained components. Um, if you're a web guy, um, essentially it's a div with some elements in it, you can nest these widgets so you can have containers and put widgets inside them and create a hierarchy which is very much like uh, the DOM, the document object model uh, in in web development. So you can build up your interface uh, with these widgets that contain other widgets and then have uh, leaf nodes for controls like um, text and checkbox and you know text input. And then you create a style sheet. And that style sheet applies styles to these individual widgets and that works just the same way as the web does um, it's kind of like a simplified dialect of css so you can create quite really beautiful looking interfaces with maybe a page or two uh, of css so that'll create something which looks very nice looks like an app um, and then you write event handlers the event handling again is quite similar to javascript because i did do come from a web background so you write these uh, event handlers for things like clicking for for text input, and you can update the state of the app uh, accordingly. So the you know the code to generate a fairly complicated app, I think, is very readable, and it's also it's quite it's quite terse. Um, I don't know if you've ever written any curses applications, um, but they're quite verbose and somewhat technical. The textual is is kind of like it's quite high level. You kind of stand stand back and you just say what you want on screen what you want it to look like, and then you connect up buttons and things. There's plenty of docs. We've been working quite hard on the docs for the uh, last few months. So if you do want to get started, um, all the information's up there. So you got to know Python, or you got to be willing to write some Python. <laughs> and I think that's a great choice of a language in terms of trying to reach more people. You mentioned earlier in the show that there's a lot of people who know some Python but aren't like, you know, capital S software, capital D developer on their job titles. Uh, but I'm just curious about Python as a choice, both for yourself personally in your work and then also for textual. We don't, we don't talk Python too much here on the podcast. So, you know, talk some Python to us. Well, why Python? Um, so I came to Python through video games. I was a video games developer and a while back I was writing a game engine. That's a long time ago. Um, I was looking for scripting languages, and I looked at all the scripting languages at the time. I didn't know much about them. I looked at Ruby, I looked at Python, 
I looked at Lua. I don't know if you guys have heard of Lua. It's, it's quite popular in yeah. video games. Yep. Um, and at the time, I chose Lua because it was perfect for uh, for video games. But I found myself dipping into Python a lot for tools and, and for small scripts. And I also found it influent, influenced the way I wrote C++. I was writing C++ and making it look more and more like Python. And at some point, I figured, well, why don't I just work with Python? Because clearly <laughs> uh, that fits my brain better. So I kind of engineered my career uh, to be more focused on Python. And my first 100% Python job was working for the Internet Chess Club. Oh, really? I was writing a, a chess interface for them. So I got to write um, Python all day. And that, that was that was a long, long time ago. And since then, that's what I've been doing in, in my career. Well, it makes a great choice for you then for textual. The one question that I would have about it, you know, we had uh, Toby Padilla from Charm on the show about uh, eight months ago now. They're doing some similar stuff to you all. I'd love to hear your thoughts on their work and your work and some of the the overlap. Definitely spiritually aligned uh, efforts. Uh, they're doing it in the, in the Go space. And one thing that Go has going for it, pun not intended, is that distribution is is really nice and straightforward. And... I've never found that with Python as an outsider who uses Python tools. You know, like I just am using stable diffusion command line last week. And so I had to dip my toe back into pip and all these things. It worked out just fine. It was good, but it wasn't like, hey, here's a binary, throw it in your path and execute it. So uh, curious your thoughts on Python from that perspective, just distribution, et cetera. Yeah, that, that is a problem in, in the Python world. It's kind of strange because um, Python itself is such a very accessible language. Yeah. But the answer to distribution isn't that great. It's not so easy to send your code to a non-developer and expect them to be able to, to run it. But there are some solutions these days which are much better than it used to be. And you can take a Python project and bundle it up, uh, turn it into an executable, and then, and then for all platforms and send that around. Um, so there are solutions. And one of the things we want to look at, look at is that model of distribution where you can bundle things up and just send one executable. Something like, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of it, the popular app framework where you can bundle JavaScript apps with a browser. Right, you're talking about Webpack, you're talking about bundling JavaScript for the browser. For browser-based applications, I forget what the framework is, Electron. is called. Electron, yes. There you go. Uh, so I think we can build a Electron-like solution because um, you can embed a terminal in a browser, and then you can bundle that with the Python code, uh, and then you, you could actually send um, a terminal app to someone who doesn't even have might not even have a, a good terminal installed, but they could just send it to them, and they wouldn't have to know uh, it was a terminal app if they're a non-technical developer. Uh, it would them it would just look like a, a web app that's maybe got less slight retro appeal okay that'd be interesting what about the the pre-installation of python say on linux or mac os or windows is there any sort of uphill battle with the pre-installation choices for example i think it's 2.7 for python on mac os and they suggest python 3 but you have to you know install it yourself so this is back to non-developers developers and software distribution is Python 3 now on macOS, I think, uh, a recent update? This I think there's two different executables. I think they're both there. There's a Python bare word and there's a Python 3 command. Like it has its own, 
either that or homebrew did that for me, but that's how it's on my machine. So that's either stock or homebrew installed Python 3 separately. I don't know. I think they're either both there. Python 3 is definitely there. It may not be like just the Python command though. Yeah. When I wish Python 3 on my terminal, I get a homebrew path. So I, I don't know. Okay. So homebrew might've done that. Yeah. It, it is a problem getting started, especially for complete beginners. There's quite a lot of hurdles uh, before you can even write Python. I mean, the Python interpreter is just the first one. There's lots of software you've got to download to get up and running. So that, that, that is a big problem. Um, and I think uh, as far as Textual is concerned, uh, we have to overcome that. We can't, uh, you can't distribute this stuff to your mother. Uh, maybe your mother isn't a software developer, but maybe you could send her an installer. Um, so I think if we can solve that problem, that will make these type of applications accessible to, you know, just the general public. Well, the good thing is that it's not a today problem for you. It's a, it's <laughs> yeah, a maybe it's a problem. problem. You know, it's, if successful, then it's a problem, right? Because initial audiences, developers, and I think developers are willing to deal with, with those hurdles. That's right. Um, but if it's just developers, it's, it's very um, a niche. It's a fairly big niche, to be fair, um, but a far bigger niche is everyone else, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're probably like 1% or something. I don't even know of the general population. 8 billion people, how many are developers, you know? <laughs> probably not 1%. Small percentage. Back to building the, I guess, the TUI, the initial textual application, you know, I'm familiar with, you know, index.html. I'm familiar with, you know, some of the paths that you can have in, a, in an application. How does that work with textual? Is there an index, is there a path that you can, you know, traverse, so to speak, when you move around the application? How does it work? There isn't, you, know, you mean like a, like a URL where you could... Right, like you've got a root for a website, for example, and then slash new is creating a new user, or slash sign in is slash is sign in, slash admin is the admin, for example. Like, is there a, a path interface, so to speak, to a textual application? How does it work? Um, th there isn't that kind of similar concept in a textual application. It's more like um, a, a mobile app. Um, so you, you might have like modal dialogues where you can go go back and, and, and possibly forward, um, but there's no like uh, URL layer yet um, because they're not truly uh, web applications. Um, they're, they're stateful, um, so they don't have a, a URL as such. But you know, when we have the version uh, which does run in the browser, uh, maybe we would want to respect the URL so you could pop in uh, the URL and return to a particular state. Uh, it's more like, um, like one page uh, applications you know, view and react in that respect. Right. So does Textual have its own state management tooling for you? Um, you, you there's kind of, there's reactive variables. Um, so you define a reactive attribute on your class and then you just modify that state and then the UI updates accordingly. Okay. But in terms of persisting that state through different sessions or... I don't know, like you just plug, I mean, you're, you're a Python programmer, so you just plug in SQLite and some Python stuff, or is there actual inbuilt or even plans to like provide some state management stuff for people using Textual, or is that like get another package for that? Um, no, I, I think we should have an answer to that. We've got a, a very kind of um, a basic layer of reactive variables, but we'd like to have like a, a state object, uh, you know, like a big, almost like JSON where you could just modify 
a dict or a list and then have the whole interface update accordingly. Um, I think it would be you know, a really good thing if we had an answer to that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, so there's two sides to that. And what we see in the web world has been like a thousand state management libraries blossom, you know? And then it's kind of like, well, we try this one, is that one, what's this idea, how's that idea? There's Redux, there's Flow, there's blah, blah, blah. And then finally, like over time, like something starts to shake out. It's kind of like, well, everyone's pretty much doing it this way right now, and here's why it has why it's virtuous. On the other side of that is like, well, the vendor, in your case, textual, just provides state management for everybody. And it's just a solved problem. Maybe we can mumble and grumble about textuals. Maybe we can swap it out and say, well, I brought my own. But then you have something there that everyone uses and it kind of standardizes around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's both approaches. There's the kind of batteries included uh, approach, and then there's an approach where you can just slot in your bit of technology. I'm not keen on the approach where you can just plug in lots of little bits of technology because they, they tend not to work harmoniously <laughs> together. Yeah. So at, at the moment, you know, uh, we're building all the widgets, and there'll be quite like a large widget library, um, but we do want third parties to build to build widgets. But I think for something like a core bit of technology like managing the state. Um, if we do that at all, um, I kind of suspect that we should do it. Hopefully after we got feedback mm-hmm. um, regarding how people actually want to use it. Because these are they're not web apps. They're kind of web app-like, um, but they're more like desktop apps in the way you operate them. So I'm not sure. That, that's, um, that's something I'd you know, revisit in the future after people have a chance to, to play with it. Well, if you look at desktop apps, and we just focus it on Mac OS because that's just the platform that I know the best, you have the core frameworks and they provide their own layers, like core data, for instance. I'm sure there's newer ones that Apple provides. And then they're also like, and you can just have a SQLite database. And so then you can just manage it yourself, like plug this one in, plug that one in. This one provides two-way data binding or whatever. Like this is the textual way of doing it. But of course, since it's, it's in the spirit of open and open source and stuff, Making it batteries included, but like swap those batteries if you want, or here's different places to come in, I think is a nice balance where it's like you don't have to bring your own, but you can bring your own if you are just disgusted by what Will and his team has come up with. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, um, it is a a Python application, and you do have all these Python libraries at your disposal. Oh, yeah. There's this huge community. Yeah. So you could. You could attempt to plug anything in, and, and some of these things will, you know, will fit in very nicely. Python has a built-in SQLite interface, so that would be, you know, I can imagine people wanting to use that. So we have a launch of sorts coming up for October twenty-fourth, a couple days away. But is there any textual applications in the wild that are not built by you? Who's using this currently? What's what's out there that's that we may have seen? What's the state of usage so far? Okay, so so the the version that's in master has been in there for quite a while, and I started building the CSS technology, but I had to leave the version in master for people to use. Uh, I didn't want to break it, and people have been using it. And there is a, a lot of applications out there. Uh, we created a, a gallery which you can find on textualize.io, and there's lots of apps. Uh, already, uh, and they're using a, a much earlier version of Textual. Uh, we, what have we got? We've got things for managing Apache Kafka. Uh, we've got a to-do app, a static website generator, 
Uh, we've got a machine learning monitor. Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of applications out there and they're, they're growing already. Uh, but we hope that once the CSS stuff is in there, then that'll really, that'll really explode. So is the CSS stuff is what's dropping on October 24th or is that a new project? What's going on with that? That, that that's um the big feature of the next uh, the next version. Once that merges, you'll be able to use um CSS and all the other features we're working on. We've got tree control, we've got a nice data table, uh, we've got text input checkboxes. Um so already there's quite a number of widgets that you could use to build uh, some sophisticated apps. And uh, we're we're really excited about that. So let's say I'm uh, browsing your gallery and I'm like, you know what? Tip top looks pretty cool. It's a version of top, but it's not top. How do I go there and be like, I like that thing. How do I use that thing? What's what's step one for that? Is it like a developer where you have to develop textual applications? How do you differentiate between creating and using? Like if I want to just use tip top, for example, do I have to do the developer steps to build textual applications or can I just use? It depends whether the developer has gone to the effort of packaging it already. I mean, at the very basic level, if it's on there, then yes, you could go to the repo, you could check it out, and you could right. follow the instructions and run it. For this one, there's in the readme, it's pip install tip top. Yeah, and if you have Python, then that'll put the tip top command yeah, in, in the path for you. Um, other other projects might use um, brew or uh, chocolatey or one of these other package managers, which puts a command a command away. Gotcha. Okay. So in most cases, there there can be some sort of README, either in the future gallery that might get more sophisticated if, if this becomes a not App Store, App Store, uh, a textual store or something like that, to, to ins- instruct the user on how to get the thing, essentially. And in most cases, it's probably PIP or Homebrew or some sort of package manager that's pretty familiar, pretty well known. Yeah, familiar to, to Python devs, uh, certainly. And hopefully in the future we'll have a, um, an answer to you know a much simpler way of getting access to all these apps that doesn't require you to like go into the repo and read the instructions um, and doesn't require you to have the right version of Python and sort right. of dependencies and, and all that. It would be cool to have some sort of universal packaged binary in this way that you talk about that could be the textual platform, similar to Homebrew, where it's like once I have Homebrew, it unlocks for me a whole list of other things I can do, right? So you, the first step is you get textual, and then textual is a TUI, which is a way of discovering and installing other TUI apps. Like, wouldn't that be that would be beautiful? Now you could also you could also sideload. I don't know, maybe we'll get that into the business model. There's no sideloading. No, you can also <laughs> sideload and just install them with pip or whatever. But like that would be a really cool way of providing that right there in your terminal, and so people would just say. Oh, do you have do you have textual install? Yes. Well, then just pop it open and find TipTop. Textual install. Yeah. Hit enter on it. It installs it for you. Manages all your Python dependencies. Make sure your environment's all set up and blah blah blah. If not, then you got to do your own Python. Pip install also works. But that would be a really cool end goal. Realizing well that you're you're like you know ten yards off the starting line of this sucker, and building the foundation is like eighty percent of the work, and then there's the other eighty percent. But that would be neat. Yeah, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I like that, Jared. It's uh, it's similar to like Homebrew list. You know, you, you list the things you've installed with Homebrew. Why couldn't you do the same thing with textual textual list or textual install? And Homebrew could have a really sweet TUI if it used something like this. 
that's better than just homebrew list where it's like, here's a vertical list of things, you know? You could actually write um, uh, Textual 2E4 homebrew. Um, they, that would be cool. Yeah, they have a GitHub repo where you've got all the, the homebrew projects um, and it's open source. So you could um, write a 2E which just basically browse that repo. You know, and, yeah. yeah. I have a hard time with homebrew sometimes because, you know, brew search basically is your interface into, unless you already know the package exists, you know, but like sometimes, like for instance, we've been building some ID3 based stuff and I'm like, I need some ID3 tooling out there. I'm just going to brew search ID3. And then there's like casts and there's these and like maybe it wasn't called ID3. So like it's literally just searching the title of the packages, right? In homebrew. It would be cool to have a, a homebrew portal or discovery platform where you could actually browse, you could type in ID3 and these people could provide non title based tags or whatever topics that allow you to just find things and, and discover better. That would be a cool standalone textual app would be like homebrew browser or something like that. I'm just describing that well, because maybe somebody will build it for us. That's why. That's kind of what formula.brew.sh is because you've got search there. And a lot of the data is is in a web application. I'm almost like thinking like, will the, you know, if textual does take off and become, you know, really usable, easy to distribute, easy to install, you know, will packages like Homebrew migrate to TUIs rather than this web-based version? They can maybe, you know, have the database and an API maybe or something like that where the data can live in both places. And I think, Will, you said that you'd have textual on the web, did you say that? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so you will, you will, the web will eat you, and you will eat the web. Right. <laughs> it does seem like a more natural place to be able to search for the software that you're going to install in the command line. Yeah. I mean, if the the interface for searching had a button that said install, and you just click that. Yeah, exactly. And it ran a process. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Right. And another one that says rate and review, and then the other one says in-app purchases, and then. <laughs> no, I'm getting ahead of myself. And I get 10% off the top. That'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah. There you go, Will. Really, We're really, just trying to no. cope with business models for you. Mm. No, it's 30%, Will. It's 30%. Come on. You have to be uh, an oil baron, an app baron. What's up, friends? This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. With the release of Sourcegraph 4.0 and the Starship event just a few weeks behind us, it is super clear that Sourcegraph is becoming not just code search, but a full-on code intelligence platform. And I'm here with Joel Cortler, product manager of Code Insights for Sourcegraph. Joel, this move from code search to code intelligence is a really big deal. How would you explain this feature, Code Insights, if you're just talking to folks in the hallway track of your favorite conference? Um, I would really start with the technical because before I was a product manager, I used to be an engineer as well. And it's really cool and exciting just to be able to say, we're going to turn your code base into a database. And the structured language that you need to interact is just the ability to write a code search. You know, literal search, that's totally fine. Regular expression, you know, that'll give you a few more advanced options, even a structural search. But the number of long tail possibilities it unlocks, truly the journey of building this product was just saying, well, we've just unlocked, you know, an infinite number of possibilities. We got to figure out some immediate use cases so we can start to, you know, invest in this product, build it and sell it. 
but we're only getting started in terms of the number of uses that we're uncovering for it. The story I told you about discovering like version tracking turned out to be a really important use case that wasn't even on our roadmap six months prior to discovering that as we were already planning to launch this product until we talked to enough folks, realized this was a problem and then found, well, oh, that's like a simple regular expression capture group that you can just plug right in because we really built this system to not limit the power of what we built. We don't want to give you like three out of the box templates and you can only change like one character or something. It's truly like the templates are there to hold your hand and get you started. But if you can come up with anything you want to track in your code base, you can do that with Code Insights. I love it. Thank you, Joel. So right now there is a treasure trove of insights just waiting for you. Living inside your code base, your code base is now a queryable database thanks to Sourcegraph. This opens up a world of possibilities for your code and the intelligence you can gain from it. A good next step is to go to about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. The link will be in the show notes. See how the teams are using this awesome feature again, about.sourcegraph.com slash code dash insights. Again, this link is in the show notes. So well, I've been pitching you business ideas. Just one. I've just been repitching you an app store idea over and over again uh, until you launch it. But we are curious because you have raised money. You're you're making a real go at this thing. And whenever you convince somebody to part with their hard-earned money, they have some sort of an idea of what that money could turn into in the future, which is more than what it is. So surely you've put some thought into what Textual could be, not just as an open source platform, framework, whatever you're calling it, for building these TUIs, but also so much more. So can you give us some version of that pitch? Like, what's the big picture idea? Sure, yeah, okay. So um, I'm in a business of what you call uh, open core. Um, it's where you've got an open source uh, project, and then you have a, a commercial add-on to it. Um, so Textual will always be um, open source, and you use it like you would any other open source project, um, but then we're building this web interface where you can flick a switch and then you can take those applications which you'd built for the terminal and all of a sudden they're, they're web applications. And from there you can like send a URL round and people that are not particularly technical could use it and they might not even know that's a terminal application. So once we have this service, there'll be like a, a very generous free tier. Um, but if you're an organization, uh, you might want to have uh, authentication built on top of that. And that would be a service that we could charge for. And also if you have um, a lot of users uh, at some point, um, you know, using up a lot of bandwidth, uh, and then that would go into a tier where uh, we could uh, charge you. And there'd be like additional services uh, on, on top of that, payment gateways, uh, file, file serving, anything, the kind of services which web developers will, will pay money for. Uh, we have, we'll carve out this little niche where we're, you know, we are building these TUIs and people are other people are bidding building these TUIs and we provide various services which they will need if they want to use their apps for some kind of like critical infrastructure. They might want to install it on all their all their servers for some sort of web application and then they can use a TUI to configure and monitor it. So there's um a fairly a fairly broad market there for people that want an interface, they want to build it quickly, uh, and then they want to for us to take over the managing, that kind of thing. It's different than what your initial pitch is, though, which is, 
you know, long live the terminal, essentially. It seems like it's the the backwards version of that, which is long live the terminal, but also the web. Yeah, if you imagine it like, um, it's kind of like the, a Kindle. Um, people think that would kill books. But for me, the book isn't the device which is running on. Um, it's the words. So these these twoies, um, they may not be running in a terminal, but they're running in the web, but they're still twoies. They still yeah. work like the web. They still have the similar kind of uh, keyboard-focused uh, interfaces. I guess I'm just surprised that you're, if I'm being completely honest, I'm surprised, I guess, that your business model is built on the other side of it, which is which is going to be an uphill battle to get people to you know, build twoies. I think people want them, but whether or not textual is the best way to get there, it, it remains to be seen. And that your business model is built on taking those twoies that people might build and turn them into web applications that have services. That's a surprise to me. Um, well, if you think of it, it's, it's um, so I'm enable, enabling people to build TUIs, but the, the TUI part is almost uh, incidental. Um, I'm enabling people to build user interfaces with Python without requiring web development skills. I mean, I, I'm a web developer by trade, and, and I know that to do even a, an adequate job for a web application um, can take take some time. That's quite a big maintenance burden and it requires you know quite a lot of skills to, to do but I'm saying you can be a Python developer know nothing about web apps know nothing about desktop apps and you can use just your Python skills uh, to build sophisticated user interfaces and the fact that they run in the terminal um, is almost incidental um, you know because you might want to run them in the terminal uh, and the web um, and desktop you can install them as PWAs so, so the pitch is, I'm going to let all Python developers build user interfaces. I see. By lowering the barriers. So it's as if Textual will have two rendering destinations. It's not like you're putting a terminal UI into the web. You're actually having the web as a separate deployment target. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah. So you can distribute, you can build an application, distribute it through PyPy. Or brew. That's fine. If that's all you want, that's that's terrific. We're gonna we're doing a lot of work with that. But you can uh, serve it so that it it runs in the browser and you can distribute it to um, other people. And they won't even know that it's a, a terminal based application. I think they look so good now. You might notice it's a bit retro. You know, um, they do have a distinctive look about them. But in general, they got scroll bars, buttons, checkboxes. Uh, if you're not a developer, if you, you could be forgiven for thinking it just actually was a web application. So you're letting developers who know Python build terminal apps, and then later you're going to say this is also a web app. Surprise. Yeah, pretty much. Well, we're, we're, we're talking about it now, so hopefully people will know that in the future. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, they'll have an idea of that future, but the surprise was just kind of like the, it's it's not a flip of a switch, but... It's like a happy ending. I don't know what do you call it? what do you call it, Adam. I don't know. Curveball. Like, yeah, curveball. There you go. I guess it's a surprise. A curveball is a surprise unless you know it's coming. It's like you yell at him, "Hey, I'm throwing a curveball," but then you still throw the curveball. <laughs> well, you know the pitcher's throwing the ball. That's interesting. That was a curveball for me. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah. Well, uh, I guess instead of letting my inability to see your vision be the conversation why is that the best business model for textual why why is that route the way you build the empire um so it's, it's quite difficult to 
you know, it started off, I didn't have a business model. I was just building some technology um, that I wanted to build because it was cool. Right. Yeah. And um, I had to come up with my commercial add-on. And uh, for me, I was, I was a web developer and I often wished I had a UI um, which I could use to navigate the file system, click a file, edit configuration, and have a button to restart a server or something. So that's what I was thinking of right at the start, that I could uh, build that and distribute it. And I realized that those type of applications are going to be useful to quite a lot of people. So I wanted to come up with a way of not just building TUIs, but also getting them into the hands of non-technical people, which is uh, where this web service comes in. Mm. Yeah, that was my initial question, I think, in section two, which is how do you distribute these applications? And I, I said it's okay to punt that for a while because, you know, we don't have that problem now, but your your business model assumes the problem and that's to solve for the problem. Well, I think that people will, you know, really start building applications uh, with, with textual. I, I did a poll on, on Twitter about what people would use TUIs for if they existed. And it was for every use understood. It was for everyone's little uh, pet project, pet problem that they wanted to, to solve. And, uh, you know, they're going to want, when they build it, they're going to want other people to use it. And uh, that is the problem with TUIs and these, these kind of packages uh, in general, and that they're only for developers. But I'm hoping that uh, there'll be a market out there for non-developers. What's the size of this market? Like, what's... What's the total addressable market for this? Like, I know it can be big, but like how? Eight billion. Eight billion. <laughs> well, I suppose, yeah. I mean, everybody who's not a developer could be using this, but I think. Well, I guess every internet connected person. Well, that, I guess, how will TUIs or how will this play into mobile? Because mobile, for the non-developer, mobile devices, you know, obliterate a desktop for the most part. Yeah, I mean, they will be able to run on mobile devices. You can have terminal-like experiences running on mobile. Um, you could put it on uh, a tablet, and you still have touch and you know gestures and things. We can build an interface for that, so it would run quite well, I think, on a tablet. Hmm. So if you're enabling developers to build user interfaces with Python and not have to deal with the difficulty of web app development... But then you're building in CSS. Like, wouldn't they have also have to know web app development then, or is it just like some basic CSS stuff? It's not that much. It's um, it's a much reduced dialect of CSS. I mean, uh, CSS in the web is is enormous, and you have to know a lot of skill to wield it. Um, it's much more reduced because the rules are quite are much simpler. Um, you've got color uh, and, and border, and some other other styles, link colors, uh, etc. So it's much easier to to learn than it would the entire of web CSS. There's a lot to be embraced, I would say, from the web platform and even what it uses to get built. Did you consider, you know, I, I know that you said widgets and containers, or I can't recall the exact terminology you used, were similar to divs and you have CSS and whatnot. Did you, because I'm thinking like there's, there's a lot of front-end web developers out there that know HTML, CSS and, CSS, and JavaScript and can build full-feature web applications, but would also love to build TUIs. And now they have to, you know, essentially abandon a lot of that direct skill set and learn Python and unlearn web to build TUIs in Textual's world. Um, I don't think... Well, the thing is, um, the, the people that are, whose job it is to write 
uh, web applications that I'm not worried. That they shouldn't be worried about losing their job or being forced to work on textual. It's for the people that... Well, I mean, to use it. I think it's really cool. I think more people want to build with it. And I think a captive audience would be the ones who are most, you know, fluent with interface building, and that's front-enders. You know, they're going to know those skills, but they, you can't take HTML, CSS, and JavaScript and apply it to Terminal. Well, there are, I think they have options. Because I know there's like a tool that builds Ink, maybe, builds Terminal apps with React and stuff. So there's like, I think that market has people building tooling for them to do, to take their front-end skills over. I think there's another large, large community that Will is a part of which knows Python and doesn't know web and would love to build some UIs. I, I think of these um, text applications not as replacing uh, what people use web applications for, but I think it because it lowers the barrier, there's applications which simply weren't being built because it would take too long uh, with a web application or they didn't have the skills. I think a lot of these could be built with textual um, because you just need the just Python skills, which a lot of people have. and it's just easier and quicker to build them. So I think they'll be not cutting off a part of the market, but creating a new market for applications which just were never built in the first place. Mm. I wrote Python for about six months a decade ago, and I had never written any before. And it took like six to 12 hours of just like, you know, dinking around to where I could do some basic, having already known how to program, right? Like I was a Ruby programmer. Moving from JavaScript over to Python is not a leap. Like, it, yeah, you got to, there's some, of course, Python has this huge breadth of things you can do, but we're talking about just core functionality. I don't think it'd be a big leap for somebody if they wanted to make that leap. But like I said, you probably don't have to. There's probably JavaScript tooling for this exact kind of thing. But to get into the textual world, if you wanted to, mm-hmm. Python is a very, Will was talking about earlier on, it's a very approachable programming language, which is kind of a weird, ironic, thing with it not being approachable from a distribution you know, perspective historically. So I, I don't think Python's going to hold him back. I, I think, um, yeah, getting people interested in text applications in general is like probably a bigger selling point. How long do you have, Will? Like, do you have a, a runway calculated out, you know, with your current burn rate and startup stuff, you know, like, Oh, um, we can work on this for N years or N months before I need to have some sort of a income. Um, so we've got five employees, including myself and assuming that level of staffing, um, we could keep going for three plus years, which is, uh, which is great. Yeah. Um, nice. cause, uh, Scottish people don't like to spend money. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm using <laughs> that, that, that money wisely. So they're all Scottish, the whole team. One's Portuguese. Okay. He, he works remotely. Okay. Are the rest of y'all co-located, like hanging out in the same office and stuff? Uh, yeah, we're all in, in Edinburgh, uh, apart from the, the Portuguese guys. That's cool. I kind of like, um, I mean, I, we probably will be more remote in the future, but I kind of like having people in the same office that you can bounce ideas off of. I find uh, things move a bit quicker having if you've got like a, a core that's like physically near each other. Are you still hiring? Or are you capped? Not right now, um, but probably will in six months. Gotcha. What uh, what kind of skill set do you think you'd be looking for in six months? Like, what kind of ideal candidate comes to your table? And um, so, at the moment, we've hired some very 
technical people, the type of people that can get involved in the nitty gritty and design APIs. I think the next phase will be kind of developer relations. So we want to um, sell textual as a, like a serious proposition for building interfaces. Um, so I imagine it'd be people that are um, particularly good uh, communicators, people that could produce videos, could write blog posts, that kind of thing. So I think they call that developer relations. That'd probably be the next hires we'd have. Very cool. Well, I guess speaking of public relations, we should mention a thank you to our friend Simon Wilson who gave us your name, Will, and said that uh, you're a person we should definitely talk to. One of the things he was praising was how you're building everything out there in public. You're kind of the, you're probably lead, lead DevRel at this point uh, for a textual. Do you want to speak to your philosophy around that? Maybe even the way you go about it or or anything with regards to your constant stream of output? Um, sure, yeah. So, I mean, um, when I started doing this kind of thing nearly three years ago, um, I had no idea that it would turn into uh, into a funded startup. I just wanted to share what I was working on, and um, it turned out it was quite visual. Uh, Rich was quite visual, you know, so I could create a screenshot and I could post that and I could discuss it. And initially I didn't have many followers. I might get a few likes here and there, but people did seem to appreciate that kind of content. Um, so I kept it up. Um, well before the funding, I was already posting uh, videos and screenshots, and that's probably what got me noticed um, by the venture capital firm that I went with, um, was the fact that I had built up an audience. Uh, these projects had got a lot of stars, and that was in part due to me just sharing what I was working on. You know, I'd share successes. If I was really proud of something, I'd, I'd post a screenshot. And I'd share fails. Um, if something didn't work out and it just it was all garbled, um, I'd share that as well. And I'd you know share technical information just whenever it came to my mind. It's kind of cathartic. Software development can be kind of like a, a solo activity, um, especially if you, you, I wasn't working on a team, working with a team at that point. It's just just me, and I, I like the idea that people were interested and in following along. Um, so I, I kept doing that and built up uh, an audience that way, and it, it seems to be beneficial. I mean, we're still a small company. I haven't got an advertising budget. I'm not going to take out adverts on buses <laughs> or the news or anything. So that this is how I, I reach my you know audience and potentially customers in the future, and I quite enjoy doing it. Yeah, I think uh, you know obviously what you've done has worked so far. You know, to to reach an audience, you've got the attention of folks with money and have a shared vision, obviously, because you wouldn't have taken their money otherwise. And you got Simon's attention because I think Simon's a pretty smart fella. He's terrific. I always appreciate his perspective and his take on software. He's got a good eye for what good software is and, you know, who's building good software. So we took his suggestion of having you on the show very highly, of course. Oh, I, I appreciate Simon doing that, and I, I love um, his content. Uh, he shares everything he learns. Uh, he puts it on Twitter or on his website. Uh, he's got like a huge corpus of um, various articles on on little technical details and on big issues. So yeah, there's lots of terrific stuff on his website. Is there anything that we haven't asked you as part of the show today? I know Jared and I had a couple different angles that we came to the show with and some investigation, but... What may we have not asked you that uh, you want to share here as we close out? Um, I guess I could share, I don't know if I said, but this is this is my plan B. So plan A, um, I was working on textual and I realized it was got 
a bit of a following and I had this idea for the web application. And at the time I was a, I was a bit down on, on my day job and I figured what I'd do is I'd um, take a year off. I've got some savings, I would just live frugally, um, live off my savings and some income from sponsorship, which I was getting at the time. And, uh, you know, that would have happened um, if it was this point, it would have been like uh, running low on money. Um, but that's when the venture capital firm got in touch with me. And, uh, you know, we discussed it and I discussed my plans and came up with a, a business plan and a pitch deck and uh, turned everything around. So it was um, much as a surprise to me as anyone else. <laughs> so y- your current trajectory is, was a plan B. You weren't expecting to, you were just expecting to take some time off, live off of savings and just enjoy your craft, essentially. Yeah, I was just going to be me and I would be happy to, to tinker and write some code over the year. And then if, if I did come up with something at the end of the year, which was, which was good enough, I could take that and then try and build uh, a company or income out of that. Worst case scenario, um, I would just return to my uh, regular day job. Um, mm. But things turned out quite differently. Uh, what's the most exciting thing and, and most scary thing, I guess, of this unexpected turn for you? I, know, I, I guess I'm, I'm excited by what people are going to build with it. If I can enable people to build things which they weren't building before, uh, that's exciting to me. You know, if there's a a lot of applications that exist in the future, uh, which wouldn't have existed without Textual. Um, I get quite a lot of buzz about that. Um, scary, I guess, is the amount of work. You know, um, plan A um, was to allow me to reduce my stress levels. Um, I could just, you know, focus on myself and uh, write some code, catch up on my reading, get a bit of exercise. But now we've got so much going on. Uh, life's a bit crazy. I'm, I'm working quite a lot and my stress levels are a bit higher but also I'm, I'm enjoying things uh, a lot more so they get it kind of balances out yeah uh, the unexpected plan b of venture capital and and you know the possibility of building something that can be a business around this you know it, it does have you know the struggle because you're the one with the idea you're the one with the vision you're the one with the the responsibility you know in a lot of the cases here so you are carrying you know, almost, if not all the burden. Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, ha- having employees, that's not something I'd thought a great deal about in the past. Um, I want to build a company um, which works for them, which, you know, they enjoy working for and can help them meet their goals. And I can kind of build the company that I would have want to have worked for uh, earlier in my career. Um, so that's, you know, a whole load of things which I hadn't thought about even a year ago. So that's all kind of exciting. Yeah. Well, Will, thank you for sharing that part of your journey and that part of your story, as well as all the details around textual, how you got there, what the future might be. Really, uh, really appreciate, you know, you being courageous to take that step, you know, really. It, it's one thing to be able to create and then one thing to, to put it out there like you have. Building in public is, you know this because you see it every day. You put something out there that's a bad or a good thing it's hard. That's hard to like be vulnerable with the world. And, and you've done that. Yeah. It's also, it's quite cathartic. I would actually recommend it to people. Um, if you can get over that phase where nobody seems to be paying attention to you and just, um, post things, eventually people will actually find your content and, and hopefully follow along. Um, so it, it, it is, it does kind of lay yourself bare, you know, sometimes you get criticized, sometimes 
but most people most times you don't people appreciate your content um so yeah I'd, i'd recommend it to anyone who's building something to just um you know tell other people about it there you go all right well thanks so much thank you yep thanks it's been great cheers This show is done. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, what do you think about the terminal as a platform? What do you think about TUIs? What do you think about building TUIs instead of web admins? Was Python a wise choice of language? What about the big picture and business model? What do you think about that? Let us know in the comments. The link is in the show notes. Once again, thank you to our friends and our partners at Fastly and Fly. And those beats are banging. Thank you, Breakmaster Cylinder. You are awesome. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate you. But that's it for this week. We will see you on Monday.